Morning, Glory, and evening, Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It is the last hour of the week on the radio, and that means I am joined by Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College for the latest in our Hillsdale Dialogues. Uh, growing an extraordinary popularity out there, proving that Americans of all types and backgrounds love to talk about the big issues in the great books. Dr. Arn, before we go back into the Peloponnesian War, I have to test out my pedagogical theory on you. I, I begin my teaching of my con law students on the establishment and free exercise clauses by making them read the second volume in Churchill's History of the English-Speaking People. And of course, they grump about and they moan and they groan. Why do we have to learn about the Tudors and the Stuarts? Why do you think I make them do that? And what do you make of the exercise? Uh, great exercise. And uh, the Tudors and the Stuarts were involved in the great war about whether uh, England was going to be a Catholic or a Protestant country, which developed gradually into the war over religious freedom which, was, in fact, was only fully realized here in the United States first, before it was fully realized in England. And that is, that is why to, you do it? That's why I do it, and I, and I think it's so real in the memory of the, the framers and the founders that they emerged from 200 years of religious strife, that it had to impose itself on their collective consciousness as they went about drafting our founding documents. And one of my favorite things is Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, um, which, which has a paragraph in it that, that's roughly, it is now no more that we speak of religious toleration, which is what they have in England by the time of the, of the American Revolution. So toleration, uh, as if it were by the indulgence of some that others enjoy their inherent natural rights, we may congratulate ourselves upon a broader policy which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance. And Washington is writing this to some Jews, and, and I think, my, my teacher and I think, that this is the first time anyone outside a chief executive of Israel, any chief executive, ever addressed some Jews as equal citizens. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he writes, uh, made the children of the stack of Abraham no peace, each free to worship beneath his own vine and fig tree, there being none to make him afraid. Well, you can only come to that resolution if you know well what happens if you go the opposite direction. Oh, and, yeah. and you end up in the opposite direction with Syria and with Iran and all of the bloody conflicts of Europe in the 1485 to 1688 period. Well, I'm glad you approve of it. Now, yeah. I want to, before we also dive in, in the course of that second volume, there is really one of the nicest bits of rhetoric. And since you are a Churchill scholar, uh, he quotes Elizabeth going down to Tilbury to talk to her troops gathering there to, to fend off the armada if it gets close, and says, I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too, and I think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm. It's a marvelous speech. He excerpts it. Do we know that to be true? Uh, yeah, we think we do. It's, it persists so much that uh, that... You know, it was current at the time, and it's handed out. In fact, Professor Harry Jaffa, one of my great teachers in life, had that inscription on his wall in really? his office. Huh. Yeah. It's really beautiful. And uh, she was something else, of course. Um, they, they, there's a couple of modern movies about her that are really good with Kate Blanchett, but the, the first one is blasphemous in a way that I think is improper. You have to kind of watch it carefully, and you can see that it sets her up as being an alternative to Christ or to the Virgin Mary, both. And, uh, and so I don't like that part of it, but 
she's an extremely interesting person. And it's an extremely interesting volume in a set of four volumes that everyone is well and, and profits by. And I bring up that speech because we're going to talk uh, in a little bit about another great speech by another great war leader, Pericles. And we don't have many such speeches in the course of Western history, do we? Well, uh, I don't know how you mean that. You mean from the ancient world. You mean, you mean many like Pericles' funeral oration. That's correct. Well, the Pericles funeral oration is in some ways parallel to the Gettysburg Address. And the Gettysburg Address, I think, is better. In, in a way, the Gettysburg Address is more ancient. But the funeral oration is a great piece of oratory. Now, that's what we call in radio a tease. Uh, so we're not going to go there right away. If you want to know about Pericles funeral oration and you've forgotten what you learned, you're going to have to stick around for the hour because before we go there... We have to pick up the story. Last week when we left off in the last Hillsdale Dialogue, the Athenians had heard the arguments from the Corsirens and the Corinthians, and they'd thrown in with the former Larry Arn against the latter, and the latter trot off to Sparta, which convokes an assembly in Book 1, paragraph, I believe, 68 through, um, I guess it will go on through 87. Uh, set this up for people and explain why this matters so much. Well, there are these two great powers. You, you, you know, to get remember the geography. Uh, Greece is a is a promontory sticking down into the Mediterranean, and on the left is Italy, and on the right is Turkey. And this war happens around this pellet, this promontory, and the two adjoining seas and the two adjoining lands. And over up toward the Italy side is where this Corsaira is. And Corinth is dead between Athens and Sparta. And Athens and Sparta, in their very different ways, are the man. They're the ones who matter in the Greek world. They've got the power. Athens has the most. And so when Athens joins against Corinth, grandma, against its child, Corsaira, then then, uh, but but there's also a grandchild named Epidamnus, a, a town that's in re- rebelling against Corsaira. Then the only place that the that the Corinthians can go is to Sparta, because they're the only ones who can hope to stand up to Athens. And this, these speeches, and remember about the speeches in Thucydides, that Thucydides writes them, and they might have been this good, but they couldn't have been better. <laughs> Well said. Well said. <laughs> and there, and and this the the one that I want to read some from today is uh, is beautiful because you have to remember that it's a proposition of the Greek world that of, of classical thought and a, and a true proposition in my opinion that the characters of cities are like the character of characters of people and they differ a lot but that inside a city. The characters of people are powerfully influenced by the laws of the city, by the character of the city. And that means you can recognize an American, and you can recognize an English person, and you can recognize a French person, and so on. And in the East, too, by the regime or the way they live. And Thucydides very much thinks this way. And one of the recurrent strains between in, in classical thought is between these two greatest of the classical Greek characters, the Athenian character and the Spartan character. Two characters which, by the way, cooperated to win the great war with the Persians and then fell to fighting effectively to destroy classical Greece. And I assume you're going to quote the Corinthian ambassador's 
characterization of both the Athenians and the Spartans. That's correct. And, and I, I used to, I, just to preface this, I used to read, when I first read this, I used to think that the Americans sounded a lot like the Athenians, but now I think the Chinese do and that we're becoming increasingly less like the Athenians of this address. But proceed, please. Well, yeah, don't be gloomy yet, because we're not, America's not done. And America is very different. See, since you raised that question, I'll expand the point. When you read about nations and try to understand what moves them, it's like an inquiry into your own life and what kind of person you want to be. And so when you read these, these speeches by the Corinthians to the, to the Spartans and then the Athenians to the Spartans too, and here these two regimes char- characterized, ask yourself, which would you want to be like? Yeah. And then ask yourself, by the way, about the Chinese. Would you like to be, what is their account of themselves? If you want to understand them, it, it's not enough just to follow the news in some superficial way. What do they have to say about themselves? What moves them? When you scratch them, what do you find? Because they're a great people and there's something moving them. And the question is, is it a good thing? And if you can understand that about them, it becomes easier to predict their behavior. And, you know, Dr. Arn, I've spent most of the last three days talking about North Korea, China, Japan, and the United States. And the great game continues at a much more uh, uh, destructive level, if you will. Uh, if, if things go awry here, it would be on a level of destruction far surpassing that in the Peloponnesian War. But it's the same great game between powers. It is. And, and you know, it's, it's a mystery what's going on there. And remember what you said about destruction, that... If you're talking about scale, of course, in the modern world, things are on a much bigger scale. But think about what is destroyed. What what was destroyed in the Peloponnesian War was the society that produced the Parthenon and Socrates and Aristophanes and Plato, right? And the the man who fostered those things was killed in the war, died in the war. Much was lost. We'll talk about how it began and how the Corinthians appealed to the Spartans about the Athenians when we return. The Hillsdale Dialogues are all available at hughforhillsdale.com or via hillsdale.edu or via my website, hughhewitt.com. Stay tuned. 21 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It's the last hour of the radio week, and this is when we do the Hillsdale Dialogues, a series of conversations with Dr. Larry Arn or another of the Hillsdale faculty on the great works which animated the West and which continue to guide it in many respects. We have for the last two weeks, for this and the next two weeks, talked about the history of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. And we are now at a point where the Corinthians have appealed and gone to Sparta and said, join with us and help us thrash these Athenians. And how do they make their case, Dr. Arndt? Start out by uh, shaming the Spartans, <laughs> you know, which is <laughs> quite a thing to do, given what the Spartans were. Um, they say, you're so slow you Spartans, and you always under, underestimate yourselves. And th- I, 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 haven't, I haven't read this in the Greek. I do read a little Greek, not much anymore, but it's, it's actually pitiful. But <laughs> I could look up and find the word uh, pusillan- pu- pusillanimous, which small souls, right? Yes. You know, uh, the Greek, that was Latin, what I just said, but megalupsike, that's big souls, right? And, and microsuke, that's little souls. They, because you, 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 and you've made terrible mistakes by being slow. Because what you've done is, first of all, after the Persian War, you permitted Themistocles, 
the great leader of the of Athens in the Persian War, to build the wall that goes from the city of Athens, which is a few miles inland, down to the sea, to the Peloponnese, the great Athenian port. And you let them build a wall to guard that passageway and make themselves impregnable to you because they can always get to their ships. And you were slow to do that. But before that, and this is a violent thing to say to the Spartans, you were so slow to act against the Persians that you let them come. And that's just terrible the way you guys are. And remember, they're talking to the people who led at the Battle of Plataea, the great big land battle where the Persians were defeated, and the people, one of whose kings died with 300 others at the Battle of Thermopylae. And then they have the temerity to say, and we hope this doesn't offend you. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, yeah. Sorry, you know, to be so candid. But you're like this, and because you're like this, the Athenians are going to overcome you. And that, they know, is what everyone is afraid of. And then there's this, after they chastise the Spartans in asking for their help, oh, please, Spartans, come to our aid, then they describe the Athenians. And I'm going to read this description because it's, it's just lovely. And while, I, while you hear this, it's in, it's in chapter 170. Ask yourself the question, if you would like to be described in these terms. Yeah. <laughs> and there are some of them you wouldn't be, <laughs> but many that you would. And so when you reflect on that, you're beginning a study of character, of what makes a human being right when it's right. The Athenians, say the Corinthians, are addicted to innovation, and their designs are characterized by swiftness, alike in conception and execution. You have a genius, you, Spartans, have a genius for keeping what you have got, accompanied by a total want of invention, and when forced to act, you never go far enough. They are adventurous beyond their power, and daring beyond their judgment. That means they're reckless. And then in danger, they are sanguine. That means they're confident, optimistic, their blood is up. Your want is to attempt less than is justified by your power, to mistrust even what is sanctioned by your judgment, and to fancy that from danger there is no release. There is promptitude on their side against procrastination on yours. They are never at home. You are most disinclined to leave it, for they hope by their absence to extend their acquisitions. You fear by your advance to endanger what you have left behind. They call them cowards. Yep. They are swift to follow up a success and slow to recoil from a reverse. Their bodies they spend ungrudgingly in their country's cause. Their intellect they jealously husband to be employed in her service. A scheme unexecuted is with them a positive loss. It's like the young Winston Churchill, you know. A successful enterprise, a comparative failure. They should have done more, they think, even when they win. The deficiency created by the miscarriage of an undertaking is soon filled up by fresh hopes, for they alone are enabled to call a thing hoped for a thing got by the speed with which they act upon their resolutions. Now, there's a, there's a speech in uh, Henry V in the Shakespeare play where, where the, Herod, the British herald walks in to see the king of France. And he looks at him and he says, uh, 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 what is your message for the king of France? The king of France says to him. 
and uh, the Herald says uh, uh, he comes he, he he comes with his demands. What demands? Says the King of France, and the King and and the Herald says, "Your throne." Huh. And if it is withheld, what then? He says. He comes in earthquake and thunder, and if you hide it in your very heart, there he will rake for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's how these these Corinthians are explaining these Athenians. They're coming. They're coming of a sudden, and you'll never know where they're going to pop up. And you sit here in your little place alone. And, and at the end of that, uh, the, the the last couple of sentences in paragraph seventy. Thus they toil on in trouble and danger, the Athenians, all the days of their life, with little opportunity for enjoying, being ever engaged in getting. Their only idea of a holiday is to do what the occasion demands, and them laborious occupation is less a misfortune than the peace of a quiet life. To describe their character in a word, one might truly say that they were born into the world to take no rest themselves and to give none to others. Now, who's that sound like, Larry Arn? <laughs> you mean Americans, maybe. Well, we used to be that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But see, you have to think about that for a minute, see, because... We're in the Greek world, right? Socrates is alive at this time. And doesn't Socrates, in the dialogues often, call into question characteristics like that? Indeed, it's a central doctrine of Aristotle, for example, and of, and of and, and the Platonic dialogues, that leisure, that is to say, at rest, to, to concentrate on the highest things, is superior to all forms of occupation. And the Athenians are given to occupation, right? They're right. busy all the time. And, and Socrates, you know, he, Socrates senses a fever in the Athenians. And this fever is dangerous to them. And it proves dangerous to them in this war. And so this description of them, and, you know, it, it, it asks you to think, what kind of person do you want to be and what kind of city do you want to live in? Now, when we read the Pericles funeral oration, we'll get a much more balanced account of the Athenians, but with many of these same elements in it. And so you can see that's a, a set of claims, right? The, these Athenians are saying, we are excellent human beings. This is the way that human beings should be. And, and, be like us. Pericles prides himself that, that, that the rest of Greece are imitators of the Athenians, except these slow, old, productivity Spartans. Spartans. When we come back from break, what it is that Pericles said. If you're reading ahead from the Strassler, it is 234 on page 110 if you've got the VDH edition. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the Our Americans, Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn and the latest of the Hillsdale Dialogues. We conclude each week on the radio with an hour of conversation like this, all of which are available for free, beginning with the Iliad. And they're all at Hillsdale.com or Hugh4Hillsdale.com. It's Hillsdale.edu, excuse me, or Hugh4Hillsdale.com or just quickly over at HughHewitt.com. There's a link. Well, the war gets going because the uh, Corinthians persuade the Spartans to throw in against Athens, and the first year of the war sees casualties, and the Athenians get together to have a funeral for their brave men who have died. And it says in paragraph book 234, after the bodies had been laid in the earth, a man chosen by the state of approved wisdom and eminent reputation pronounces over them an appropriate eulogy 
after which all retire. And it is to that eulogy, Pericles' funeral oration, Larry Aaron, that we turn to. And I, I think there was a time when every school child had to read this. That time is gone, and unfortunately so. Yeah, very much. It's it's one of the great speeches in, in recorded history. It's uh, and and yeah, people should know who Pericles was and what's going on. Pericles is the builder of the Parthenon, of the great eruption of of classical beauty and learning in in, in the civic side of it. That was Pericles, the great force in Athens for a generation. He lasted a long time, and he was. Uh, brilliant, and and he had a strategy for the war, and already the strategy is under test, and is raising huge complaints against him, which come in a few months, come to a crescendo, because his strategy was, we're not going to go on the battlefield against the Spartans. We can't beat them. No one can, and that means they're going to march their army up here, and they're going to ravage all of the land around Athens. They can't get over the walls, including the wall down to the sea. But they're going to tear up our farms, and everybody's going to have to evacuate the farms and come into the city. Well, the farms belong to rich people, nobles, uh, aristocrats. And the people who work on the farms are going to have to leave their homes and come into the city. And Athens quickly becomes terribly overcrowded because, of course, Archidamus... Uh, a Spartan king who was against the war and wanted to wait, however, leads the first expedition. And in the first months of the Peloponnesian War, they ravage Attica, the land around Athens. And Athens is overcrowded, and that may be why a plague broke out that devastated Athens and took the life of both of Pericles' sons and in the next year of Pericles himself. But Pericles is unmoved by this until he's killed by it, and he refuses to give way to the cries that we must send the hoplites out to fight the Spartans. He said, that way lies destruction. We will get our food from our colonies by way of our Piraeus, the port, and up into the city, protected by our walls, and they'll never be able to touch us. And as long as Pericles lived, they stuck by that. And uh, most of the war, they stuck by that, too. Um, and so he's the author of that. And this funeral is the funeral of the first dead. And it's a funeral at large public expense, and it's to honor these dead. And Pericles himself, in this speech, uh, characterizes the Athenians and their character and what they're like. And, and and I want to make sure we don't run into the break here before, so I'm going to go to the end before we come back and spend eight minutes on it. Uh, I've got in my hand, Dr. Larry Arn, a, a, a coin given me by the Gold Star Mothers, a couple of whom were here two weeks ago. You know, it's very difficult to interview, much less orate to people who have lost their loved ones in war. But Pericles does this with everyone, and he speaks to them directly, to the people who've lost sons and Husbands, it's it's really quite amazing to think it through. Mm. And he's he's he, you know it's very firm how he he you know there is a passage in this where he talks to the women. Yes, and and if I can find it here, it's I at the I end. Great yeah, will be your glory in not falling short of your natural character, and greatest will be hers who is least talked of 
among the men, whether for good or for bad. Very controversial, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. And uh, on the other hand, if I must say anything on the subject of female excellence, to those of you who will now be in widowhood, widowhood, it will all be comprised in this brief exhortation. Great will be your glory, not falling short of your natural character, and greatest will be hers who, who is least talked of among the men, whether for good or for bad. In other words, no whining. No whining. I know. It's, it's so brusque. We come back. We'll hear from Dr. Larry Arn what it is that Pericles said about his city and about those who had fallen for it. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hillsdale Dialogues, available at HughHewitt.com. Stay tuned. The Hugh Hewitt Show, coming to you from the Reagan.com studio. Reagan.com, the official email provider of the conservative movement. Reagan.com. 44 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. Uh, Dr. Arn, I'm just going to give you the floor here for we have an eight-minute segment to, to just expound on the Pericles funeral oration. Okay. Um, Pericles explains the Athenians and... The, the Athenians are very special people, he says, and of course he's helped to make them what they are. Our Constitution does not copy the laws of neighboring states. We are rather a pattern to others than imitators ourselves. He says we are a system of popular rule. We favor the many instead of the few. And we favor equal justice. So a principle is equality among the Athenians. It's like us, right? We do not feel called upon to be angry with our neighbor for doing what he likes, or even to indulge in those injurious looks which cannot fail to be offensive, although they afflict no real harm. Hmm. That's a description of freedom. Yep. And in the ancient world, you know, the, the rule is, and it's a famous comparison, in the modern world, what the law does not forbid, it permits. In the ancient world, what the law does not permit, it forbids. And, you know, the totalitarian states, uh, China, in some of its moods, attempts to reverse that and make that true in the modern world again. But uh, Pericles, uh, Pericles is saying, not in Athens. And yet he goes on to say, we obey the law here. And he says, we do that so, so we're an equal people, and we leave each other to our own devices. But on the other hand, we serve the state. And we obey the law. And we do it because we, we're afraid not to do it, he says. We fear fear. But the laws that we obey include those unwritten laws. And that must mean laws that apply to everyone, you see. And that this is an, an Athenian creation, the idea that there are such laws. Uh. Uh, that's, you know, the Socrates line, right? Let us find the good for man. And we obey those laws. And that means that we are worthy by deduction of this imitation because we are obeying laws that apply to all. We are a model for other cities. And then he says, uh, so, so, um, he says, um, we're very courageous. Now, one, one thing about this speech is the speech is, uh, it, it's very self-congratulatory. Yes. You know, it, like if you read the Gettysburg Address, and I, I would encourage you to go and read that as you read this. And, and just note, first of all, the themes are very heavily overlapping. But the tone of the Gettysburg Address is almost entirely sacrifice and, and duty. 
and it's more tragic than the funeral oration. And that's an interesting thing, because um, uh, Lincoln doesn't make any prediction about the course of the war. But his, his, his cause, I argue our cause, wins that war. Whereas uh, Pericles is more confident, and they lose the war. Himself, Pericles dead in a few months from this. He, he even taunts the Spartans. It may be noticed that the Spartans do not invade our country alone, but bring with them all their confederates, while we Athenians advance unsupported into the territory of a neighbor and fighting upon a foreign soul, soil, usually vanquish with ease men who are defending their own homes. Yeah. He's, he's quite the braggart. We cultivate refinement without extravagance and knowledge without effeminacy. Uh, he just, there's nothing the Athenians don't do. Wealth we employ, see, so we're, so we're also, we're disciplined, right? We employ wealth for use more than for um, um, extravagance, and we're not ashamed of par- poverty, only ashamed of struggling against it. Yeah. So, you know, part of the thing is, aren't we something? And that, you know, you, you won't find... In Winston, I argue, you won't find in the pages of Winston Churchill or Abraham Lincoln speeches that are about how we're the greatest, except that it's a cause that's the greatest, and we are honored to be in service of it. And that's a different thing, you know, it's a different attitude. And you could say that Pericles is a more ancient attitude because honor and pride occupy a different standing in the virtues than they do in the Christian era. But it's, it's also haughty. Like if you read the response of the Spartans earlier, back in 173 and 4, to the, to the Corinthians, Archidamus is the first one to respond, and he says we shouldn't do this. Right. These guys are hard to beat. Yep. In Let's go words, slow. His, his speech sounds like a predict- the, the Corinthians are predicting his speech. And then they surprise everybody by going to war, partly, though, from fear. Pericles is not moved by fear in this. And, and, uh, and see, there are, uh, apart from the arrogance of it, which has a grandeur of its own, there are beautiful passages in this, too. And I'll read a couple of them. Um, to love of Athens fills your hearts. And then when all her greatness shall break upon you, you must reflect that it was by courage, sense of duty, and a keen feeling of honor in action that men were enabled to win all this, and that no personal failure in an enterprise could make us consent to deprive our country of, our, of, of its valor. But, they, but we lay it at the feet of, of our nation, our most glorious contribution. The heroes have the whole earth for their tomb, and in lands far from their own, their epitaph declares their death. There is enshrined in every breast a record unwritten with no monument to preserve it, except that of the heart. That's that's amazing. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. Surely to a man of spirit, the degradation of cowardice must be immeasurably more grievous than the unfelt death which strikes him in the midst of his strength and patriotism. And he and and Dr. Arn, thirty seconds, comfort, not condolence, is what I have to offer up to the parents of the dead. That I'm not even sure what that means. 
Uh, but fortunate means fortunate indeed are they who draw for their lot a death so glorious as that which has caused your mourning. Well, that is the Periclean funeral oration. When we come back to Thucydides next week with Dr. Arn, we're going to talk about something called the Melian Dialogue on the Hillsdale Dialogues. But go and read it for yourself and read the Gettysburg Address at the same time. Dr. Arn, thank you. The Hillsdale Dialogues available at HughHewitt.com. Stay with us.